Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 87. After they score 14 runs in Game 1 against the Pirates last Thursday, the Brewer offense manages 8 in the next 3 games. And they have a series split with the Pirates. Not what you want this time of year. Brandon Woodruff did make his return. Very quality effort on Sunday. We'll discuss that. But the Brewers have not been able to capitalize on a weaker schedule in the last week. We'll see if they can capitalize on the Rockies being in town starting the first of three tonight at AmFam Field. Packer Family Night is in the books. First preseason game on tap for Friday. We'll break that down. And more college football realignment. The Big Ten gets bigger. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! We're going to smash up the middle, base hit the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's hard! And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul on a pinnacle ball, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. You know where I want to start today. We'll get to the Brewer offense, the trials and tribulations, mostly trials and tribulations. That could be the title of the Brewer offensive playbook this year, trials and tribulations. We'll get to that in a second. I saw this floating around Twitter. We're going to hop around a little bit here. We'll start maybe with the NFL, then go to Brewer baseball, then end on college football. I saw this floating around Twitter. It was a montage of all the themes of the football broadcast for CBS, for Fox, for Sunday Night Football on NBC, for Monday Night Football on ESPN. And the guy who tweeted it out, his question was, which is the best or rank them one through four? I don't know if I have a ranking for you. All I know is that this was about 90 seconds of me getting jacked up for football season. The CBS theme. It's a good one. This one I do think is mine. The Fox NFL theme. God, this just gets you going. Let's go. God. That one still does hit a little bit. Oh, we got a little. Oh, oh wait a minute. We got buffering. We got buffering, everybody. All right, where's Monday Night Football here? Yeah, there is a heritage to that one still. How would you rank those? It just got me excited. It didn't, I didn't, they're all good. I like them all. I feel at the end of the day, just because the Packers always play on Fox, I know that's changed. We've talked about that how now you see the Packers more on CBS and the conferences aren't necessarily AFC just on CBS or NFC just on Fox. That's still the bulk. 
Because the Packers for most of my life, when did Fox sign that contract and just change the whole broadcast game? 1994, 1995, where they added the score bug was there the entire game. Remember that when Fox got the NFL rights? It was a big move. Fox was not a big station when that happened among the Power 3 or Power 4 stations, over-the-air stations, when they signed that NFL contract in, it must have been 94. And they burst onto the scene with that pregame show that was an hour long, which was longer than most at the time. Their in-game broadcast, though, I will never forget, even as a 10 or 11-year-old, just the score and the clock being on the screen the whole time. (laughs) blew our minds you mean I get to know the game situation the entire game we didn't have the first down line yet or anything like that that score bug being in the upper left hand or upper right hand upper left hand corner of the tv and just you all were always aware of the game situation the down and distance the score you could watch the clock tick down it wasn't that way before that broadcast I remember and sometimes I'll even still catch games on NFL network old school games where that wasn't the case. I think they had Super Bowl 32 on not too long ago. Why did I watch that? I have no good answer for you there. Where did this game go wrong? I blocked most of it out of my memory. Where did it go wrong? That broadcast, though, was on NBC in 1997, and that still didn't have a running score bug on it. You would watch huge chunks of the game, and you had no idea what the game situation was. You didn't know how much time was left, what quarter they were in, what the score was. They would flash it once in a while, and they'd flash the down and distance on the field once in a while. Fox was a game changer. My feeling is that because most of the Packer games, as the renaissance was going down, all those big games with Madden and Pat Summerall on the call, those were all on Fox. That one hits a little different. NBC's Sunday Night Football score is top-notch, and that really has become the Monday Night Football of this era. That is the biggest game of the week. That's the flex game. That's the end of a long day of football. You hear that theme. There is that heritage of Monday Night Football, too. I think I'd have to go Fox NFL if I'm going to rank them. They're all. It's it's 1A, 1B, 1C, and 1D. It's tough to pick just one that you love. I saw that video floating around, though, and it, all it did was just get me really excited. We're less than a month away, or a little more than a month away from the regular season opening. We have the Packer preseason game on the way on Friday. Had family night on Saturday. I did have to laugh, too. Packers and Bears fans. Maybe it's because Aaron Rodgers is gone, and there's a feeling, and we probably discussed this too, there's a real feeling in the NFC North right now with the other fan bases, the Lions fan base, who they are the favorites right now. I wonder how that's sitting with Detroit fans. I'll have to pose that on the air one day on B93. I know we have a couple of diehard Lions fans that are listening, that listen to the morning show. I wonder how that suits them. We're there in that odd position now where they are the hunted. They are the favorites. They are the team on the rise. They've got a lot of good young talent. There are expectations there. Not just maybe finish 500 or not be in the top 10 of the next year's draft. There are expectations to win the division and make noise in the playoffs. I wonder if you're a Lions fan, how that's sitting with them after, what, 20 years or 25 years of basically futility with the exception of a few Stafford playoff runs in there? There is that feeling in the NFC North, though, and I have it in our building here where we have a lot of Bears fans. We have fans of other teams in the division. With Rodgers gone, the boogeyman is gone, and they're feeling a little cocky. They're feeling like this is their time now to rub Packers fans' noses in it and hopefully get a bunch of wins and start a real long run of success against Green Bay after being on the brunt end of it for so long. You just get that feeling. Because it's chippy. It's real chippy. Chippier than normal. Twitter is always chippy, especially when it comes to NFL stuff, to sports stuff. It's real chippy. Packers had family night on Saturday. Of course a sellout. 70,000 fans, all the fireworks, everything like that. 
the Bears had an open practice on Sunday, and it looked like maybe 5,000 people were there just speckled throughout the stadium. Of course, Packer fans on Twitter ran with that, and they did a side-by-side where it said, our open practice versus your open practice, and put Lambeau on family night next to whatever that Sunday practice was or Saturday evening practice was for the Bears, or barely anybody showed up, no pun intended, but intended. Then there was a Bears beat reporter or blogger that did a side-by-side as a counterpunch of our city versus your city. And on the left, it had the Chicago skyline with all the gigantic buildings and right on Lake Michigan. And then on the right side, had a rural farm barn with a couple of chocolate labs in the gravel driveway getting ready to play ball and a ton of open space. He was saying, look at how awesome and advanced our city is and look how bumpkin your city is. I don't think that message was received that way, though. A lot of the comments said, I don't know, man, the right looks pretty good. couple of chocolate labs with big smiles on their faces and a ton of open space. (laughs) That seems pretty good to me. The tight quarters of downtown Chicago. I don't know that that one landed the way he wanted it to. But they've been going back and forth now. Packer beat reporters and bloggers and podcasters and Bears beat reporters and bloggers and podcasters. It seems to be at a very high pitch for what was yesterday, August 6th. Now, we know they open against each other. It's at Soldier Field. Jordan Love getting that first road test, a 325 start time. The national TV audience on Fox. Get that Fox theme ready. On that first Sunday on September 10th, it just feels real early for the different fan bases to be going at each other with that type of vigor. And I do believe that Rodgers being gone, the boogeyman being out of the building, has a lot to do with that. Those other fan bases for the Lions and Vikings and Bears that have just taken L after L after L with some success in there against the Packers, but mostly taking losses for the better part of 25 years. There's just a changing of the guard hope and feel for the other fan bases that I think has ratcheted things up quicker than we normally see. Jordan Love had some nice throws. I mean, it's practice. I don't know what you're going to take from that. You probably saw the one that did get me a little excited where he was rolling to his left. And he had a couple of defenders in pursuit. Of course, in practice, they can't hit him. Maybe it would have been a sack if this were an actual game, a regular season game. Bears fans were talking about that, too, because Packer fans were tweeting out this video of how awesome this throw was that Jordan Love made. And then Bears says, oh, he would have been sacked in a real game. No chance that play gets made in a real game. Well, no kidding. It's a practice. That's why it's a practice. He had two guys on him, though, and he kind of roped his arm and spun the ball around. He spun the bullet around both defenders and kind of found Aaron Jones in a tight spot. He's had a few throws. We talked about the one a few weeks ago where he hit Christian Watson on the run right over his shoulder in tight coverage from 50 yards out. He's had some of those where you think, ooh, ooh, I like this. This looks good. Maybe we have something here. We're not going to know, obviously, until the year's over what Jordan Love is, or at least halfway through the year. There are those throws, though, that do get you excited. I think you probably have to hope that that's the case. If he was making no throws like that, that would be concerning. The one, though, that I saw from Family Night that it was shared a lot on Twitter was that one, and it looked like a pretty good piece of work by a starting NFL quarterback. That looked like an Aaron Rodgers-type throw or a Patrick Mahomes-type throw. Will he be able to do that kind of stuff consistently in a real game? Who knows? That throw did get me a little excited from Saturday. Otherwise, who were standouts? Musgrave, the tight end, was a standout on family night. I don't know. They think people were very high on Devontae Wyatt. Maybe he'll take a leap in his sophomore year. 
first-round defensive lineman draft pick from last year, did not get a lot of playing time, but did measure out well in terms of the measurables and the metrics and the pressure he was able to put on a quarterback. When he was out there, he did have an impact. He was so raw, though, he was not getting a ton of snaps last season to the point where I want to say about 60% or 70% of the way through the year with the defense struggling the way it was last year. You saw a lot of Packer fans on social media saying, why not give Devontae Wyatt more run? When he's out there, he's having an impact, but he's only out there for 10% of the snaps. He seems to be, according to most of the beat reporters and those covering practices and family nights so far, he seems to be taking a pretty sizable step forward during the offseason. How that will translate in four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, who knows? It is encouraging news, though, coming from Packer Camp as they wrap up family night. Yeah, they'll have the Bengals on the road. First preseason action for Jordan Love as the guy. Remember, he took almost all the snaps the last two preseasons because Rodgers was not going to play, and it was a good chance to give Gordon Jordan Love Gordon Love? Gordon Love. Maybe that'll be the next quarterback. If Jordan Love doesn't work out, we'll draft his brother Gordon Love. Jordan Love got most of those snaps the past few seasons because you weren't going to risk Rodgers' injury in the preseason, and you wanted to see how he would develop as the backup to Rodgers. Another guy that people seem pretty impressed with is the rookie backup to Jordan Love, Sean Clifford, the rookie from Penn State, fifth-round pick. A lot of people thought he would go undrafted. Clearly, the Packers saw something in him that they liked to spend a fifth-round pick on a guy that might have been there in the sixth or seventh round or might have been there as a street-free agent. He has apparently been pretty impressive in camp, too. I was always of the feeling that the Packers would go out and get some veteran backup. And there are still guys out there they could explore if they really wanted to. It doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. They're going to go really young with Love as the starter and probably Clifford as the backup. They got that guy from the USFL. I forget his name. And they did cut... Who was the other guy? (laughs) I can't remember. They did cut... I keep thinking J.T. O'Sullivan. It's not J.T. O'Sullivan. That's a name Packer fans will remember, though. They did make the one roster cut at quarterback, and now they have three in camp. It looks like Clifford is going to be the guy, though. I thought before the year began or after the Rodgers trade when that was settling in and it it became clear that Jordan Love is going to be the man this upcoming year and probably next year, and hopefully he shows you something and he's the quarterback for the next 10 years. My feeling, though, was with the risk of a young quarterback getting his first real action, that they would get a veteran backup just in case something went wrong or an injury happened or whatever – It looks like Clifford could be the guy heading into the regular season. Yeah, getting set for the opener for the preseason schedule on Friday. Okay, we've stalled long enough. Brewers and Pirates, we talked about it on Friday. They score 14 runs on Thursday. They get hits with runners in scoring position, good contact, taking pitches, getting walks, stealing bags, running like a well-oiled offensive machine. And I said on Friday, we had the text line joke on the B93 text line when we talked about how good the offense was on Thursday that, oh, watch, John, they'll score one run then and lose 2-1 to tomorrow. Well, it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't far off. They score 14 runs on Thursday and then score eight combined over the next three games. It just, it's, it calls for Stephen A. I know we played this when the Bucks were having their issues in the playoffs. This is a Stephen A. I mean, this is a good look, man. I, ah! They're so tough to watch. I am suffering. It's hard to take. If you're a diehard Brewer fan and you're watching almost all the games or listening to almost all the games or whatever, it is difficult to watch this offense. And not just this year, but the past three years. Even in 2021 when they won whatever it was, 95 games and the pitching was so good, all the pitchers were healthy, they were having elite seasons. You always knew under the surface of that 2021 team that offense was a problem and that's what cropped up when they lost in the NLDS to the Braves. 
Then the offense was the issue last year as they crumbled down the stretch and the pitching which had carried them fell apart, trading hater, all of that stuff. And the offense continues to be a problem this year. They have the second worst offense now in Major League Baseball, I'm pretty sure, if you're just measuring in terms of runs scored, even with the 14 runs on Thursday. And even with the bats they added, Carlos Santana and Mark Canna, we said league average bats, but league average would be an upgrade over what they've gotten from right field, what they've gotten from first base. Well, in their first week in Milwaukee, Mark Canna is batting 150, and Carlos Santana is batting 189. I know it's tough to expect new players with a new team in a different situation to come in and produce, but the Brewers need them to. There isn't enough time for this offense to sit there for a week or two while these guys get things figured out. That's what has been happening, unfortunately. You needed these guys to come in and be Mark Canna hitting 245-250 or be Carlos Santana with an OPS of 750. Carlos Santana has hit a couple of home runs. That's been good to see. They really haven't provided you much of anything, though, so far offensively in that lineup. Yelly had a bad weekend. He had a three-hit game in the 14-run outburst on Thursday. He had a couple of hits on Friday, then he didn't have a hit on Saturday or Sunday. It's tough. You have to have Yelly at an elite level or an all-star level every game because, really, it's only been Yelly and Contreras. Those are the only guys over the course of the entire season that have given you the most consistent offense. You're at a point where, of course, Yelly's going to have a weekend where he goes 0 for 8 or 0 for 9 like he did on Saturday and Sunday this past weekend. You just can't afford it, though. You cannot afford him to do that because he has been, along with Contreras, the two most consistent pieces you have. He had a bad weekend. Contreras had an okay weekend. Overall, though, just not a whole lot of anything. The biggest problem still is Willie Adamas firmly in the middle of that lineup doing absolutely nothing. 0-4 again on Sunday after an 0-4-4 on Saturday. He's batting 201. OPS now well below 700. Hasn't hit a home run in a long time. It's tough. We all like Willie. I think we all like Willie Adamas. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn there. He is the heart and soul of this team and pretty much has been since they acquired him in 2021 when he had a fantastic second half of that year or whatever, 60% of that year after they picked him up a week or two before the deadline. He has always since that day been the emotional leader of this team. He's the guy who installs the home run bell and he's the guy who puts the cheese head on. Cheese head has been conspicuously absent. Some folks on Twitter have been noticing that, that recent home runs have not had the cheesehead celebration. I have read that that cheesehead was apparently Luis Arias's cheesehead, and he took it with him, maybe. I'm taking my cheesehead with me to Boston. Maybe that's why they're not doing that celebration anymore, or maybe it just got a little stale given how bad, I'm a little moldy, if you will. I got it. Took me a second, but I got it. Maybe it was getting a tad moldy given how bad the offense has been to celebrate these infrequent home runs the way that they had been. I don't know. Willie, though, is the emotional, energetic leader of this team. And when he doesn't have it going at the plate and he's lost the way he is, it does impact the team in more ways than one. It impacts the lineup because if he is going the way we saw Willie going in 2021 when he hit 285 with whatever, 30 home runs or close to 30 home runs. Last year, we saw that average dip down to about 240, but he set the franchise record for home runs, almost at 100 driven in. So from that perspective, just from the raw baseball perspective of one of the guys that you're relying on to be a middle-of-the-order impact, that has not been that for the majority of the year. And then the spillover of that is he also happens to be the biggest leader in the clubhouse in terms of energy and goofing around and keeping the team loose. When that guy is lost at the plate and hitting 201 and going 0 for 4, 0 for 5 every game, 
How can that frustration from him not bubble over to the rest of the team? I don't know what you do with him. You got to drop him, Craig. Craig, if you're listening to this, you got to drop him. We've been over Craig Council many, many times in this podcast this season. I love Craig Council. I know some people do not think he's a good manager. I don't know how those people truly believe that, given that this team is in first place with all of the injuries, with the deficiencies offensively, with the starting rotation. You just got Woodruff back. We'll talk about that in a second. He's been able to navigate all of that and the bad offense of the past couple of years, and he got him to a division title and the playoffs in 2021. If not for the hater trade, probably gets them to the playoffs at least last year, and he's got him in first place this year. He needs to drop Willie Adamas in the lineup. You can't... It's one of those weird baseball things. Give him a day off. Maybe you give him a day off tonight. That's what Brewer Twitter is screaming for, to give Willie Adamas a day off. Give him a mental break. Give him a couple of days off, maybe. See if he can hit the reset button, blow out the cartridge, and be good to go after a day or two off. A lot of baseball players will tell you, and I've covered college level. Obviously, I've never covered major league level except chirping him on podcasts like this. But... A lot of players will tell you that that doesn't necessarily have the impact that fans think it will. Fans think if you get a day or two off mentally, you'll come back refreshed. That's not necessarily the case. A lot of players prefer, even when they are really struggling, to be in the lineup every day and to fight their way through it. The only way to get to the other side is to go through it, they will tell you. If that's true, then that's true. And Willie gives you the elite defense So it's hard to take him out of the lineup when he's still playing really good defense at a premium position. All of that being true, you've got to move him down. You just can't have him in the middle of the lineup. Maybe that impacts him a little bit mentally when he sees his name on the 7 line or the 8 line. That's a risk you're going to have to take. He has to know. I mean, he knows. He's not an idiot. He knows he's been bad. He knows he's struggling mightily. He knows that right now that's a big anchor on this team offensively. If you put him down to 7th or 8th in the lineup, is that going to shock him really, given what we've seen over the course of the entire year and especially the past couple of months? And where you are in the year trying to chase down a division title with two teams on your back and the offense being the weakest link of the team? I don't know that he's going to be stunned by that development if you move him down. I just don't know how much longer you can go with him batting. He was third. I don't know how much longer you can go with putting him in the three or four hole consistently, and he's just going to be going 0 for 4 with bad strikeouts. And it's like any player in a slump, he always seems to be up. When there's guys on and two outs, he always seems to immediately be in an 0-2 hole and have his heels against the wall. That's what it is when you're in a bad baseball slump like that, and it's going bad for him right now, and that always seems to be the case. You would love a little pressure-free environment for him. Right now, though, it seems like every time he steps into the batter's box, it's a big situation where they need runs. There's a runner in scoring position. There's two outs, and he quickly ends up in an 0-2 or a 1-2 hole where he's trying to battle back in the count. The problem is exactly still what we talked about last week. His front foot is moving too quickly. He's trying to cheat a little bit to get a head start on the pitch. He's not reading breaking balls too well, and any low and outside slider or low and outside two-seam fastball is getting him, and he's just wildly swinging trying to pull everything. He needs to try to go to the opposite field. Easier said than done. When he goes well, he is hitting everything to the opposite field. Right now, he's trying to pull everything, and he's cheating with that front foot, and it's just a mess. That's a big issue for this Brewer offense. But overall, it just hasn't been good enough. Sal Freelich talked about that at the end of the game yesterday when he was asked about Brandon Woodruff's return, how good that was, and he said he was frustrated that the offense couldn't pick him up. That one through nine, they could not pick up Woody in his return to the rotation. Speaking of that, he was great. Five innings of two-run ball, 
through 85 pitches. It didn't sound like any after effects. Two mistakes, and they were two wall scrapers. They were two wall scraping solo home runs from guys that do not have a lot of power. It's one of those things where if they're each hit a little differently, it probably ends up being an out on the warning track. It does bite him, and given how bad the offense has been, being in a 2 nothing hole feels almost insurmountable sometimes. He had nine strikeouts. He struck out the first five batters he faced. He was hitting mid to upper 90s on the gun. Just his third start of the year. Very encouraging, though, to see him come back and look good. Hobie Milner had a scoreless inning yesterday. Abner Uribe had a scoreless inning yesterday. J.C. Mejia gave up a couple of runs late. It didn't matter. That put him in a 4 nothing hole. They did eventually make it 4-1, to one, and they had a couple of guys on at the end. I don't know that anybody thought down 2 nothing, but let alone down 4 nothing, they'd be able to come back with the way they looked yesterday. They did get just enough offense on Saturday, and I mean just enough, to scrape out a win, the Blake Perkins walk-off and extras. That essentially salvages a split against a bad Pirates team. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying anything the Brewers don't know. When they got through that 15-game stretch to begin the second half against quality teams, against the Reds, against the Braves, against the Phillies on the road, they go 8-7 and seven in that stretch. That's a good stretch. After that ended with that really bad series in Atlanta, we went on the podcast and said, look, now you have a chance to maybe get on a good run. You've got a last-place Washington team for three. You've got a last-place Pirates team for four. You've got a last-place Rockies team for three. You've got what should be a last-place White Sox team on the road for three this coming weekend. Maybe this is a chance where you could go 8-5 and five or 9-4 and four or 10-3 and three in that 13-game run. Get yourself 12 to 13 or 14 games above 500 and maybe get some space atop the NL Central. So far, so not good. They are lost the series to Washington, who did go and sweep Cincinnati, by the way. Again, as agitated as Brewers fans were about that series in Washington, I was one of them. They go into Cincinnati on the road and sweep the Reds. This is why baseball is a quirky sport. You go back, though, to that series all the way through this four-game set with the Pirates, and the Brewers are 3-4 and four against a couple of last-place teams. That adds to that narrative of just not being able to take care of business against bad teams, getting swept by the A's, getting swept by the Rockies early in the year, and now 3-4 and four in this seven-game stretch. This is what happens when you don't have bats that are hitting consistently. It's tough. How many have they even had this year? If you go back... Have they had anything longer than a six- or seven-game winning streak? Not that that's a bad winning streak. It's just so difficult. They had a six-gamer to open the year after losing to the Cubs. They went six and one. They won five in a row in April. God, they were so good early in the year. And six wins in a row, five in a row, and that's it. They've only had a handful of small winning streaks, six in a row and five in a row, and both of those were in April. When your offense is not scoring consistent runs, I don't care how good your pitching is, it's really difficult to get on those runs where you win eight in a row or you win 10 of 12. That was their problem last year, too, especially down the stretch. They end up 10 games over 500 in 2022, but they just could not put together one of those really hot stretches when other teams were. And then, of course, there was the whole hater element, but that's kind of rearing its head again right now. The good news is they're still in first place. They actually picked up a game in the standings over the weekend for how bad they played. The Reds, like I said, got swept by the Nationals. You pick up a game on them. The Cubs are charging, though. Cubs take two out of three at home from a Braves team that after they swept away the Brewers in Atlanta last weekend, we said, and I think most agree, are the best team in baseball, the best lineup in baseball. They're loaded. Well, that's how hot the Cubs are. They've been hot before that, and then they take two of three, winning Saturday, Sunday at Wrigley Field after getting beat down on Friday, eight to nothing. I saw that score on Friday afternoon. It's always an afternoon game at Wrigley on Friday. And I saw the Braves win that 8-0, and I thought, oh, thank God. They're going to take care of the Cubs, push them back a little bit, cool them off. 
to the Cubs' credit, they go out and get a win Saturday. They go out and get a win on Sunday. They are a game and a half back, and they're only one back in the loss column. They've played two fewer games than the Brewers. Right now, technically, the Cubs are in second place and the Reds in third place, even though they're both a game and a half back. I'm not sure who Chicago has. The fact that they go and win that series, that just further proves to me what we talked about on Friday. This is, You know that last series against the Cubs at AmFam Field is going to have a lot on the line in terms of wild card, in terms of a potential division title or a first-round buy in the playoffs. There is going to be a ton on the line in that series. Let me see what the Cubs have coming up here. Are they right back at it tonight? They are. They're in New York taking on a Mets team that's pretty much mailed it in now with all the trades they made. They have three in New York, three against a very tough Blue Jay team on the road. Then they've got oh, then they've got the White Sox at home, the Royals at home, at Detroit, at Pittsburgh. They've got a ton of winnable games after the six-game road trip. It's tight. It's getting tight in the NL Central. Hopefully the Brewers can take care of the Rockies, please. After losing all three in Colorado earlier this year, it starts tonight, 7-10 first pitch. Freddie Peralta on the hill. Wade Miley goes on Tuesday, 7-10, Wednesday afternoon, Adrian Hauser, who, by the way, I saw at State Fair on Sunday. He was out there enjoying it with the fam. Big guy. Adrian Hauser will wrap up the Rockies series Wednesday afternoon. Then I'm on my way to Chicago. We will not have a podcast on Friday. I think it might be our first podcast off since we started this. Maybe one other week where we only did one. I know we were only doing one for a while, and then we picked up Monday, Friday. I will be off from my work starting on Wednesday, and then my wife and I are going down to Chicago. We are trying to make it to every baseball stadium and every national park. Is this an unrealistic goal? Absolutely it is. But it is a goal nonetheless. We've got two framed things in our house. One of them is a push pin board with all of the national parks, and one of them is a scratch-off with all of the baseball stadiums where you take out the piece of paper and you scratch it off when you've been there and it's in color instead of black and white. We have not been to whatever it's called, Guaranteed Rate Field, the new Comiskey U.S. Cellular Field in Chicago. We're going to do that on Friday. Check out the White Sox-Brewers game, and then we're going to kick it over to the Indiana Dunes on the southern tip of Lake Michigan. That's a national park. We'll be over there on Saturday. That's a kind of a long weekend for us, though, taking off Wednesday through Sunday. We will not have a podcast for that reason on Friday. I will be at the Brewer game on Friday as they take on the White Sox. Corbin Burns on the hill on Friday. Woodruff going on Saturday. That kicks off a difficult nine-game trip. After that White Sox three-game set, take on the Dodgers. We know the Brewers have not fared well at Dodgers Stadium for three. And then at Texas, Texas is in a battle right now with Houston to see who can win the AL West. They just picked up Max Scherzer, who you know the Brewers will probably see in that series. Tough nine-game road trip after these three at home. Have to take care of this. Win the series. You'd love a sweep. If you can get a sweep against this Rocky team, you go 5-2 and two on the seven-game trip or a seven-game homestand. And maybe then by Wednesday, if you do get the sweep, we're not sweating that split with the Pirates as much as we are right now. Just not great. Not great against another bad team for the Brewers over the weekend. And we will end with some college football. The realignment continues. Washington and who else? Oregon. Oregon Trail, Oregon Trail. Washington and Oregon both joining the Big Ten as the college football landscape continues to be a muddled mess. It's more national now. The regional rivalries are dying. It's tough. If you are somebody like I am who grew up on Big Ten football and 11 a.m. kickoffs in October with Purdue and Northwestern punting left and right and battling to a 9-3 to final. That's Big Ten football. Running the ball in between the hash marks and punting seven times a game and winning a field goal battle 9-3 to with an 11 a.m. kickoff on an October Saturday. That's Big Ten football. Big Ten football is not 
the Badgers playing at USC at 9 p.m. But this is the world we now live in. This, to me, is all a byproduct of going to the playoff system, which we all agree had to happen, right? No one was happy with the BCS. There was too much disagreement there. There were too many computers involved. Too many people were left out in the cold or good teams that had one random loss or unbeaten mid-majors. We didn't like the BCS. We all were pining for a playoff system. We got the 14 playoff. It's going to become an 18 playoff. My guess is before all is said and done, it will be a 16 team playoff. I don't think you can expand past 16. You're just adding too many games then to a schedule, but I wouldn't rule it out. My feeling is that will be the max. A byproduct of this, though, is TV contracts and money and the whatever, what do they call it again, where you can capitalize on your name and imaging. I forget. All of that is all in the same bucket, and that's why you're seeing these conferences dissolved. It's all a money game. If you told me 10 years ago, is that how long the college football playoff has been around? If you told me 10 years ago that they would get rid of the BCS, they'd bring a college football playoff, but it would come at the expense of the conferences being realigned and a lot of the traditional rivalries and things that you know about college football go by the wayside, would you trade that for a playoff system? I think I would, and I think that's what these two things are connected with. I just think that's all a part of it, and now the Pac, whatever it is, the Pac-4, the Pac-12 is trying to find a couple of teams to add to itself just to keep itself alive. At the end of the day, you're going to end up probably with three mega conferences where the Big Ten, the SEC, and maybe the Big 12 are able to survive, and everything else is probably going to be more of a mid-major with a couple of the old guard teams sprinkled in there. This, to me, though, is connected directly to going to the playoff system, and it's a sacrifice that a lot of college football fans probably make because that's how bad we wanted the college football playoff system. It is going to be weird. I am weirdly looking forward to some of those Badger-USC matchups next year. The whole schedule got scrapped. They're going to have to redo the whole 2024 schedule now with Washington and Oregon entering in. There is a part of me that's excited because it does conjure up memories of Rose Bowls, and you have some history there. You have some rivalry built in. Certainly, though, when I think Big Ten football and the type of college football that I grew up watching, you do not think of the Badgers playing at 8 or 9 p.m. on the West Coast, and you definitely don't think of USC. Well, I don't think USC or UCLA or Oregon or Washington will ever play an 11 a.m. kickoff at Rutgers. I don't think that's going to happen. That's not the type of matchup, though, that springs into my mind of the Big Ten that I grew up with. But as they say, things change. And to get that college football playoff and to make sure some of these players are getting paid and able to cash in on their name – This is a part of it. This is a whole, this is a big byproduct of that whole situation. That was news late last week, or was it early this week? Late last week. And it sounded like Washington and Oregon were saying to the Pac-12 officials they were going to stay, wink, and then did an abrupt 180 the next day. They will both be joining the Big Ten in 2024. Yeah, it's a shame. It's just because I grew up with it. Now, the generation now that's, teenage years they're 12 13 14 15 16 whatever years old or kids that are in college now they'll grow up with this and then in 30 or 40 years when this changes then they'll be upset about that it just depends on your age how you feel about it to me college football has always been super regional and regional rivalries and things like that they all have their own feel to them that is changing that's just the way of the world and that's just the way it's going to go when you get into a college football playoff system that's soon going to be eight teams and then probably 16. All right, that'll do it for us here on your Monday. As I said, I am out on Friday. I will report back one week from today on my experience at the White Sox Stadium. Hopefully the Brewers can get it together. 
get a nice series win or a sweep against the Rockies, get a nice series win or a sweep against the White Sox, stabilize themselves a bit, get the bats going as we are just about getting set for the stretch run in baseball. We'll be talking about that on Monday, one week from today. We'll recap the preseason game the Packers have in Cincinnati on Friday. Get into all of that. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you in a week.